Uh, the text this morning is from Galatians 3, 1 through 14. O foolish Galatians, how bewitched you who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do crave your word this morning. We, we need to hear from you. And we have heard from you. And so we pray now that your spirit would, would move through the preaching of your word so that our hearts, our lives would be transformed. We, we pray that we would be hearers of your word this morning and we would believe, but that we would leave this place not merely being those who hear, but being those who do your word as well. Give us the grace we need to hear and respond to your word according to your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, just as a reminder to children, TC Kids will be meeting tonight. And Miss Erin, who's leading TC Kids, wants me to remind you to take notes this morning. So, in the liturgy guide, there's a place for you to take notes. If you, if you have your own little notebook, you can take notes there as well. And I would also encourage teenagers to... Uh, if, if taking notes helps you to uh, understand and to process, then I would encourage you to take notes. And here's why that's important. What is coming from the pulpit is not just for adults. What, what's coming from the pulpit, you don't have to be um, a certain age. There's not an age requirement from, for hearing from the Lord, okay? So uh, children, students, the Lord speaks to you. He, he works in you and through you. And so we want to encourage you to, to interact with the word as, as the rest of us are as well. And parents encourage that. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. There is a version of Christianity that isn't real Christianity at all. But there's a version of Christianity that is very alive in the South in general and in Tupelo specifically. 
you're probably familiar with the, the phrase for this. It's typically called cultural Christianity. But I think Paul would give it a different name. I think Paul would call it foolish Christianity. Foolish Christianity is a version of Christianity that respects Jesus, but doesn't rely on Jesus. The reliance is on personal performance. Foolish Christianity contains a head nod to Jesus or a tip of the cap to Jesus, but Jesus is blended with a good and decent life. He's just one component. The, the vision in foolish Christianity is to have a good and decent life. And in order to have a good and decent life, I mean, you got to have Jesus, you got to have church thrown in. Foolish Christianity says, I'm not perfect, but I'm not all that bad either. I'm religious, but in reality, I'm not desperate for Jesus. He can come and go. I can take him or leave him. Jesus becomes a nice addition to an otherwise good and decent life. That's what Paul's speaking to here in Galatians 3, 1 through 14, foolish Christianity. Now, what have we learned so far in Galatians, the first couple chapters? We've learned the situation, that there are false teachers likely that have come from Jerusalem to Galatia to complete in their mind what they believe Paul has left out of his gospel message. So when Paul first came to Galatia and he preached the gospel, Luke records that for us in the book of Acts, when he comes to Galatia preaching, he is preaching a message of salvation that comes by God's grace and is received through faith alone and is received not just by ethnic Jews, but by Gentiles as well. It's a gospel that extends to the ends of the earth. Paul preached that the work of Jesus in their place was sufficient for their salvation. He told them this story of their sin before a holy God. He told them how this God has fully and forever atoned for their sin in Jesus. Period. End of sentence. And he implored them to, in response to this message, do nothing but believe. Believe was, was, his, was his message. Because Paul believed that faith in Jesus was all that is necessary to receive all the benefits that are granted by the cross. Forgiveness, peace with God, blessing, acceptance into God's family. And here's what happened. He preached that message and Gentiles believed. Those in Galatia, they believed this gospel and churches were formed. But the reason Paul's writing this letter is that there was a false gospel spreading in Galatia. There were those who came, they were like slave drivers, they brought their chains, and they attempted to bring the Galatians back into the slavery from which Jesus had set them free. But the worst part of the situation in Galatia, for Paul especially, wasn't the presence of the false teachers or their teaching. That we focus, a lot of people focus so much attention on the false teachers themselves, and we want to diagnose what the false teaching is. That's not Paul's concern. The worst part was the sad reality that some of the Galatians were believing the false teaching. That something more than Jesus was necessary for their belonging in God's family. So Paul then sets out, we saw in chapters 1 and 2, to defend his gospel and his ministry. So now, in chapter 3, he begins to address the Galatians specifically. He gives this vivid and pastoral picture of of their error and what they're actually doing look at his address oh foolish galatians 
boy, wouldn't that have been comforting to hear read for the first time? Like you've gathered as the church as you, as you did every single week in Galatia and the one who's coming to read, oh, we got a letter from Paul. Let's hear what Paul has to say. And they're re- reading all of this. And, oh man, he knows about what's going on. Paul knows. And then you get to, to what we call chapter three and they read, oh, foolish Galatians. Can you imagine being the person having to read that? You know, oh, foolish Galatians. There's actually a paraphrase, the, the Phillips paraphrase of this, that says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Man, wouldn't that be so pleasant to hear? But he continues with his sarcasm. Who has bewitched you? Another translation may say, Who's, Who has put you under a spell? And he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's Paul saying here? Paul is taking the Galatians back to the time when he first preached the gospel to them. Now, the Galatians, obviously, did not see Jesus publicly crucified. They didn't. They weren't there. They weren't, were you there? No, they weren't there, okay? They were not there when Jesus was was crucified on the cross. They actually did not see Jesus dying on the cross. However, when Paul told the gospel story, their hearts were so captivated by the message that they could visualize Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. They could see him. He was presented in this gospel presentation to them in such a way that they could actually see Jesus dying. So the gospel story is so vivid and it is so heart penetrating that it was like they were there when it happened. But now, What are they doing? Even though they had seen Jesus crucified through the preaching of the gospel, they are turning from this crucified Jesus. And they are starting to rely on works of the law in order to belong in God's people. So so Paul offers a very clear and very piercing description of such a move. Foolish. Foolish. Paul can't believe that they would turn from Jesus. You can't believe. After all that you have seen, after all that Jesus has done, you're going to turn. Surely the only way you would do that is if you're under a spell. Surely someone has come in and put you under a spell to cause you to turn from this gospel that you have believed in and seen the benefits of. Paul says the Galatians are foolish because they are in the process of believing a false gospel that teaches that you must perform in order to belong. They are relying on works of the law, and Paul says it's foolish. Here's a question for us, and you, I would encourage you if, you, if it does help you to write you know, notes or reflect, are we being foolish? Are we being foolish? Are we relying on works of the law, on our performance, on our obedience, as the basis for our acceptance with God? And here's the question I want you to reflect on be a great question tonight for life groups how are you prone to rely on works of the law because some of you may be thinking well no i don't go i don't read leviticus every day to see all of the law and make sure that i'm lining my life up with the law i don't do that so relying on works of the law may look different for you well first what does it mean to rely on works of the law here's what it means maybe this will help you as you reflect It means that you are counting on your obedience to merit acceptance, approval, and belonging with God. It's it's a belief that says, if I just work harder, if I just do enough, if I just obey more, then God will finally be happy with me. Then God will finally bless me. It's a belief that I perform, and then God responds to my performance. 
You put yourself on a stage, you put on a show, and then you hope that God is the judge. It's not like Simon Cowell, you know, and he, he looks at you with favor and he accepts you. You hope that he will determine that you are good enough to get in on his eternal blessing. You may not overtly believe this, but do you subtly believe it? If, if you examined your life, if you wrote down what you do on, on any given day, and then you reflected on the motivations behind what you do on any given day, would the outcome be that you're relying on works of the law? Do you believe that your place in God's family is based on how well you perform spiritually each day? Do you believe that God's love for you oscillates, goes back and forth in response to the degree of your love for him? Do you believe that God's faithfulness to you is determined by your faithfulness to him? I heard a preacher preach that one time. We believe that God's going to be faithful to us because of how faithful we are being to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your status before God and that God's affection toward you are rewards for your quiet time in the morning, in the word, and in prayer? Do you believe that you need to complete what God has begun in you so that you will be truly and finally accepted? It's very easy for us to slip into relying on our works. Do you know why? It may, may surprise you, but the, it's because the gospel is sometimes difficult to believe. It's difficult to believe. It, it, think about it. It's just hard to believe that God loves you just as intensely when you sin as when you obey. That, that God's, as, as God looks at you, your status before him doesn't change on the basis of your obedience or your sin. That's hard to believe. It, it's hard to believe that God loves you just as intensely when you are faithful to read the Bible as when you fail to read the Bible. God is like a good parent, right? This, this hits home with me as, as a dad. God's love for his children is not based on what they do. Think of a good parent. Some of you had good parents, some of you didn't. You can both relate. I love my boys. I love them because they're mine. Because they're mine. That's it. That's it. Not, not be, Jude can do well in school, he can fail in school, and it doesn't change my love for him at all. Not an ounce. And those of you with children understand that. Do you understand this, though? That in the gospel, God says to us, those of us who believe, I love you because you are mine in Jesus. That's it. It's so easy, yet so foolish for us to rely on works of the law rather than on Jesus for blessing and for peace, for justification and for adoption into God's family. Why is it foolish? Why is it foolish to rely on works of the law to finish or complete your salvation after you have believed the gospel? Paul seeks to answer that question in our passage this morning. He gives us three reasons. Three reasons why the Galatians and why we are prone to be foolish by relying on works of the law. Why is it foolish to rely on works of the law? Three reasons. Reason number one, it is foolish to rely on works of the law because we have received the Spirit. Because we have received the Spirit. Reason number two, it is foolish to rely on works of the law because salvation has always and only come by grace through faith. Shorthand version of that, that's just how it's always been. It's always been this way. So why would you change? All right, third reason. It is foolish to rely on works of the law 
because Jesus died to redeem us from the curse of the law. All right, three reasons we're going to unpack them. First, we have received the Spirit. Second, salvation has always and only come by grace through faith. And, and the last, because Jesus died to redeem us from the curse of the law. Those three reasons. That's why it's foolish to rely on works. All right, let's take them one by one. First, because we have received the Spirit. Here's what Paul writes, starting in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Ab- okay, wait, stop. That's the second point. All right, so the first, uh, verses 2 through verse 5. Because we've received the Spirit, it is foolish for us to rely on works of the law. So the Spirit is a gift of God's grace received by faith. The Spirit is not a reward for obedience to God. And so Paul is helping them reflect on when they first heard the gospel and then their experience immediately following that. He's taking them back to that first experience. And so what we believe, what the Scriptures testify to, is that when a person first believes the gospel— which is a process that we call conversion. You're repenting of sin, you're believing in Jesus. We call that conversion, where you were changed into a Christ follower. He or she receives the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's a process that happens instantaneously, where, where the, uh, the Spirit comes and you believe the gospel, but you receive the Spirit. The Scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God, indwells those of us who believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes as a comforter and a guide. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, empowers us to glorify God, and conforms us to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit, in sum, works in us and through us to do and be what God has called us to do and be. The work of the Spirit is the work of transformation which is something that you can experience and you can know. There, there are clear evidences of the Spirit in your life. Paul later is going to talk about fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The Galatians had received the Spirit. The miracle of conversion itself is evidence that the Spirit has come. The simple fact that there were Christ followers in Galatia is evidence that the Spirit had come to Galatia. So, what we see here is that a real conversion is not just you making a decision, even though you do, and it's important, but a real conversion is the power of the Holy Spirit entering in and giving you a new heart as you hear the gospel and simply believe. So as the Galatians are remembering the work of the Spirit in their lives, Paul asks them, all right, so okay, good, you remember that? You remember you... You believed, and the Spirit came, and the Spirit worked. You remember when that happened? And then he asked them this, he asked them this rhetorical question. Did you receive that Spirit by works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? He's, he's essentially saying, at what point in your life did the Spirit begin working in you and through you? When? When did the Spirit start moving? When did the Spirit start working in you? When did you start to notice change? There's only one answer to that for the Galatians and for us. Only when we heard and believed the gospel. Not before. And it wasn't delayed until we finally, you know, obeyed well enough. When we, believed, when we heard and believed the gospel, 
We received the Spirit, and we saw him and experienced him work. So what we see here is that the Spirit is received, not as a reward for good behavior, but as a gift of divine grace. Paul asks in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's what Paul's saying. Even before you began worshiping rightly, even before you began obeying the Scriptures, even before that, God sent his Spirit to you. So even before they organized themselves as local churches, the Spirit was given to them. The Galatians received the Spirit when they believed, not after they finally started cleaning up their lives and obeying the law. So God the Father graciously pours out the Spirit on everyone and anyone who receives Jesus by faith. They didn't earn the Spirit by obedience to the law. So he says, it's foolish for you then to rely on works of the law now. And he drives that point home with his next question. He says in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What we learn here is that the Christian life doesn't merely begin with the work of the Spirit, leaving you to finish the job by your own spiritual grit. Like the Spirit gets you started, and then you do the rest, and you better hope you're good enough. That's, that's not how it works. The Christian life continues by the work of the Spirit as, as God supplies the Spirit to us by His grace. So we don't begin the journey by faith and then finish the journey by works. Faith isn't just something that gets you in and then you have to rely on your works the rest of the way. Faith in Jesus is everything. It's, it's the totality of the Christian life. That's why the gospel is for Christians. When, when you tend to think about the gospel and who it's for, you tend to think about people who don't know Jesus. We need to take the gospel to the nations because there are those who have yet to believe in Jesus. We need to share the gospel with those in our neighborhoods and in our city who don't know Jesus. Do you understand how much you need the gospel this morning? Every single week? Real Christianity never stops being a miracle of God's gracious power. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. We talked about parents and God and how they compared earlier. Let's see how they contrast now. So parents, and if you had good parents, bad parents, or if you are a good parent or a bad parent, either way, you can, you can understand and relate to this. Parents provide for their children until they can provide for themselves. Amen? Right? We provide for them until they can provide for themselves. You even see it as they're little, right? Like they're in diapers for a while, but the goal is for them to get out of the diapers and be potty trained. And it's such a huge victory when they're potty trained. You don't have to do that anymore for them, right? They can take care of that themselves. Or, man, when they can finally get themselves dressed, oh my goodness, like that was such a gift when, when Jude finally was able to get himself dressed. It's one less kid, you know, we got to put a bunch of clothes on. Or, you know, buckle themselves in the car seat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Susan's like, yes, yeah. It's huge. It takes so much time to get every single kid in the car seat. And eventually, what are you going to do? You're going to take the car seats out of the car. They won't need them anymore. And, you know, some of us, we get excited about that, but it's sad too, right? Because eventually there comes a day where, you know, I was wrestling with Jack the other day, and I kind of got him, and I was kind of cradling him like this, holding him. And I just remembered him being a baby, and I was like, man, I don't have to carry you around like this anymore. Like, you're running all over the place, and we're fighting right now. And those times come to an end, but that's the goal. That's the goal. It's the bittersweet goal of parenting, that you provide for them until they're able to provide for themselves. And if some of you have, like, you know, 20-somethings living at your house, I'm so sorry. You're like, I, have not, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it doesn't, this doesn't relate to me at all. Sorry. Um, maybe one day. Maybe one day. But that's the goal. 
God's not like that. It doesn't work that way with our Father who's in heaven. God never stops providing for his children. You know why? Because we never stop needing provision. There comes a day when your children stop needing you. And it's bittersweet. There will never come a day when you stop needing God to provide for you. There will never come a day. Paul is saying, it's foolish. You're, you're foolish. You think that you have graduated? You think that you're, leave, you're, you're, you're grown now and you can just leave the house and provide for yourself and care for yourself? You're going to rely on your own obedience and your works of the law? You're going to take care of it now? Thank you so much, Daddy, for, for getting me to this point, but I'm good. Mm-mm. Paul says, you're foolish for thinking that you now no longer need God to supply his spirit, that you no longer need the gospel, that you no longer need God to provide for you. God never stops providing for his children because we never stop needing provision. And then there's an interesting question that he asks in verse 4. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And honestly, the translation differences here, I'm sure all of you have a footnote above the word suffer there. And the, if you look down at that, it says it could also be translated as experience. And depending on the word that's chosen here, it, it changes how you would interpret it. It changes how you interpret it. So um, hmm, I'm not exactly sure where I land on it. I've, I've read enough people that, that go both ways, but we, we make a similar point here. Here's the point. If you are counting on your performance for salvation, your suffering or your experience of the Spirit, either way, was in vain. It was in vain. Here's, here's what he means. If we believe the wrong things about Jesus, and believing that you can rely on your own performance to, to earn a place with God is the wrong thing about Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're sincere about it, even to the point of suffering. It doesn't matter. If, if we believe the wrong things about Jesus, we will believe in vain and waste our lives and even suffer in vain. And the Spirit gives purpose to our suffering. So if you rely on works, you abandon the benefits of the Spirit. So as, as he's, if it means experience, for example, and it's like the experiences of the Spirit that, that you went through, that was in vain if you're relying on your works now, if you no longer need the Spirit. So to some of this little section here, relying on your own performance is foolish because it denies the spirit who was given to you as a gift. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and you did nothing to earn this. You did nothing to earn his presence or to earn his activity in your life. He works in you and through you by God's grace and grace alone. Relying on your spiritual performance is saying to the spirit, thanks but no thanks, I got this. Doesn't that, it, that even sounds foolish because it is. So look at your own life and see just how much has happened to you, how much has happened in you and through you as a result of the Spirit's presence and activity. And remember that you did nothing to deserve this. So rest in that gift of the Spirit because the Spirit, we have received the Spirit. It's foolish to rely on works. Second reason, it is foolish to rely on works of the law because salvation has always come by grace through faith. Now, Paul does something interesting here. It's so wise. It's so wise what Paul does. And Abraham becomes a big part of the rest of his argument in, in chapter 4 as well. Uh, and he talks about the law a little bit later. But it's so wise what he does here. The false teachers in Galatia, they no doubt believed that Paul was obliterating the law of Moses. 
That he, he is just telling these Christians they don't, you can just cut that part of your Bible out. You know, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. And so they are appalled by this. And so they go and they're defending in their mind the law of Moses. They're defending Moses. They're defending the law. And you can imagine that those in Galatia started to believe that Paul may have just been a disgruntled Jew. You know, maybe he just, he had a grudge. And so he was exaggerating the gospel to be all of grace. Because Paul, let's make no mistake about it, he's preaching that salvation does not come by keeping the law, but by God's gracious initiative received through faith alone. So what does Paul do here? As an example of why it's foolish to rely on works of the law. He's like, okay, fine, you want to bring Moses into this? Let's go back before Moses. Let's go back before the law and let's look at Abraham. Let's look at Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So he quotes from Genesis 15. This is a quote in, in verse 6 here where he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, verse 6. And here's what we remember from that time, that God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise. God chose Abraham. He called Abraham out of his, out of his homeland, and, and he says, Abraham, you are mine. Here's my promise to you. I'm going to give you a child, and then your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars that are in the sky. Look up at the stars, Abraham, and that's going to be your people. I'm doing something completely new in you and through you, Abraham, and it's going to be all of my grace, and I promise there will be eternal blessing, not just for you and your children, but for all nations one day. And he made that promise to Abraham before Abraham believed anything about God. Abraham was an idolater, and he calls Abraham by his grace, and he gives him this promise, and then what did Abraham do? Well, then Abraham got to work. He was like, well, if I'm going to receive a promise like that, I better, I better get straight and say, you got some laws for me? You got some, what do you want me to do? No. Abraham believed. Abraham believed God's promise, and it was counted as righteousness to him. He was justified on the basis of his faith and his faith alone. Abraham's faith was enough for God to fully accept him and to bless him and to bless all those who would come after him. His faith was enough for that. And it wasn't a tr on a trial basis. It's like, okay, cool, like you're in the door with the faith, but I'm going to make some demands of you, and you better live up to the standard because if you know the story of Abraham Ball you know that he did not live up to the standard Abraham was just as sinful as anybody in this room but Abraham believed God's promise and so what's Paul doing here he says this blessing this blessing that comes through Abraham and extends to all peoples comes through the work of Jesus alone and the point here is that you don't have to be ethnically Jewish and you don't have to become culturally Jewish in order to inherit the blessing of belonging to God's people. Look what he says. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and this is a quote from Genesis 12, 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Here's the conclusion. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We belong to God's people by faith alone. We become descendants of Abraham when we believe the gospel, which means that we are included on this new humanity and this eternal blessing that God gives and originally promised to Abraham. So 
the point Paul's making here is, okay, all of a sudden you're going to start relying on works of the law and they're saying, these false teachers are saying you need to do that because that's how it was in Moses' day. Paul's saying, okay, time out. Let's go back to Abraham's day. That's not how it's ever been. People are accepted by God, not on the basis of their obedience to the law or on the basis of their performance before God, but on the basis of God's grace that's received through faith. So to change the formula now is foolish. Here's how it applies to us. When you start thinking that your personal devotion to God somehow earns his favor, you need to remember that not even Abraham could earn God's favor. Not even Abraham belonged based on his obedience. The law hadn't even been written when Abraham believed. Yet, Abraham was fully, freely, and forever accepted by God on the basis of his faith and nothing more. So the one in this room with the weakest faith in Jesus belongs to God just as much as the one in this room with the strongest faith in Jesus. Because it is not the or because it is the object of faith that counts, not the degree of faith. So Paul's saying here, it's foolish for you to all of a sudden change things up and start relying on your works for a place with God when it's always been that you were saved by God's grace, received through faith. So it's foolish because that's how it's always been. All right. Third and final reason that it is foolish for us to rely on works of the law because we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Verses 10 through 14. Paul says, if you rely on works of the law, you are under God's curse. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27. Let's, let's look at it right here. Not Deuteronomy, but, but Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Let's stop right there and consider this for a second. Here's how it works. If you're going to try to rely on your obedience to the law, you better obey all of the law perfectly all the time. If you're going to try it, if you're, if you're going to try to, to cause God to look on you with favor based on your work, based on your performance, you better be perfect. All right, if you're going to undertake this, this mission, you better be perfect. But since you aren't perfect, and I think you would readily admit that, cultural Christians readily admit that. I'm not perfect. I'm not a bad guy, but I'm not, you know, I know I'm not perfect. Well, if you aren't perfect, you're going to disobey some law and at some time, probably many laws at many times, and if you disobey the law, even at one point, you fall under the curse of God. In other words, if you're going to try to earn your salvation, you better be perfect or you won't earn it. You better be perfect or you're going to fail. Here's what Paul's saying. Why would you rely on your performance, your obedience, your good works to earn God's blessing when you know it's impossible? Speaking of the law, he says... And he goes back to Deuteronomy. Why, why would you do that when you know it's impossible? Why would you exchange a free blessing for a deserved curse? Now, why are we in danger of the curse of God? If we are flirting with foolish Christianity, 
Because it's so easy in our context to think that we're good enough with just a little Jesus sprinkled into our lives. How tempting is it to feel good about yourself, feel good about your spiritual state and your place with God when you are doing churchy things? How good is it just to feel good about yourself? Like, I'm good when you, when you do churchy things. So you, you, may, you may even have a list, you know, if not written down in your, in your head. You read the Bible every day. Oh, you're just clap. Oh, good job. You read the Bible every day. You feel good about yourself. You pray every day. Ooh, man, it's a step up. A lot of people don't do that. You know that? A lot of people don't pray every day. And you start to feel good. You go to church almost every week. I mean, my goodness, this day and time, that is just like you're knocking it out of the park. You go to church almost every single week. And not only that, you serve. You serve in the church. Oh, not only that, you serve in the nursery. Like, you know? Like, man, it's like you got a list of everybody in the church who's serving in the nursery, which means you know who's not serving in the nursery. You're like, mm-hmm, I'm on that list. I'm ser- not only am I serving, I'm serving in the nursery, you know? Well, or what about this one? I've been on so many mission trips, I can't even count them. Lost count. Lost count how many planes I've stepped on to go out of country. You feel good about yourself. You, you do. And by the way, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. That's a sermon for another day. But you start to feel good about your obedience. You start to feel good about your performance. And here's the danger. The danger is not doing those things. The danger is you can stop feeling your need for Jesus. I'm good enough. Look at all I'm bringing to the table. Look at all that I'm providing. Look at all that I'm doing. I'm doing such a good job. Do I even need Jesus? You start feeling like God owes you something because you've been so faithful to him. Listen closely. No amount of theological knowledge, church involvement, service, no matter how sacrificial, or mission trips can remove the curse of God from over your head. Because no matter how faithful and obedient you are, what's going to happen inevitably? You're going to fail at some point down the line. And if you fail at one point, you might as well fail at all of the points. And you invite the curse of God upon your head. God's standard is impossibly high. And that's because God's holiness is infinitely glorious. So you can't just add a little Jesus to your very good and decent life. That's not how this works. Oh, I love how Ray Ortland puts this. It's so good. This is so good. It is better to sin catastrophically. It is better to sin so extremely that we finally give up and we stop telling Jesus who he's supposed to be and we just listen to who he really is. That is infinitely better than living a decent life with a false Jesus as my mascot sitting on my shoulder telling me I'm not all that bad. That false Jesus is the devil. And then Ortland says, bring your worst to Jesus and he will give you all of his best forever. There is immeasurably good news here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You cannot redeem yourself from the curse of the law, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Through his death on the cross, he, brought, he bought us back from the curse that we deserve. Now, do you, do you know why salvation comes through the death of Jesus and not just through the life of Jesus? 
Why, why is his death required here? Well, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 21. Let's, let's see what he says in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, here he's quoting from Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus' death on the cross, according to Paul, is evidence that Jesus received the curse of God. The curse of God fell on Jesus. But, you know, that causes us to ask, how could the only one who obeyed the law perfectly receive God's curse? There's only one who's ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve God's curse, and he received it. What gives? Well, Jesus isn't bearing an earned curse. Jesus is bearing an imputed curse. That means that Jesus was counted, considered a lawbreaker without being a lawbreaker. Jesus bore the curse that you and I deserve. And why did he do that? He tells us in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that you and I could receive God's blessing that we could never in a million years merit for ourselves. Jesus received our curse so that we can receive his blessing. The spirit that we talked about, the blessing of Abraham that we talked about, they come to those who have faith in Jesus. And this is made possible only because Jesus fulfilled the law in his life, received the curse of God in our place, and rose from the dead to obliterate the curse of God against his people forever. So for those who trust in Jesus, it is nothing but blessing and peace and grace and love forevermore. Not because you have deserved it, but because God has given it to you through Jesus. So relying on your obedience to give you spiritual rest, contentment, and blessing is like inviting the curse of God upon your head. And doesn't it feel like a curse? More like a curse than a blessing when we live this way? Have you ever caught yourself feeling like if you don't wake up and read your Bible, then somehow God's affection toward you may change. It, it feels like you have a curse hanging over your head. Think about how exhausting it is when you think that the circumstances of your life are determined by how faithful you are to God. This is happening to me because I haven't been faithful enough. How exhausting that is. It's like walking around with a curse over your head. Think about how burdensome and enslaving it feels when something good like Bible reading and prayer become performances that you hope may reap a reward of blessing from God. Maybe now I'll be good enough for God to give me his blessing. Now consider it on the other side. How different would your life be if you lived like you already had God's blessing? How would you live how different would your life be if you knew that you already had God's peace and his forgiveness and his love solely on the basis of the fact that Jesus died for you and that you have placed your faith in him? How different would your life be? You see, Christianity is all or nothing. It's all or nothing. That's why foolish Christianity doesn't work. So it's foolish. 
You can call it cultural Christianity all you want. It's foolish. It, it, won't, it won't pan out. It won't work in the end. You either stand before God on Jesus' merit or you stand before God on your own merit. You either abandon yourself and cling to Jesus or you abandon Jesus and you cling to yourself. You either depend on the work of Jesus' hands or you depend on the work of your own hands for salvation. So how foolish are we being this morning? Are we relying on our own spiritual performance to earn God's blessing? If so, we are indeed foolish because we have received the Spirit as a gift of God's grace because salvation has never worked that way and because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So what will it be for you today? What will it be? Will you keep striving to earn a place with God or will you finally give up, surrender, give up, on relying on your works like Abraham and believe God's promise in Jesus? Would you rely on his work on your behalf this morning? Only one way will save. Jesus will do everything for you or he will do nothing for you. You can't just have a little bit of Jesus sprinkled into your otherwise good and decent life. If you try that, the curse of God remains on you. So my counsel to you this morning, rely on Jesus and you will find rest for your soul. Let me pray.